Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. Welcome to the Modern Merriman Podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Merriman is a podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian laypeople will rightly divide the word of truth. Hey, Tom, it's good to be back with you, man. Hey, John, it's great to see you, brother. Today, we're uh, deciding to wade into uh, this doctrinal disputes that uh, are becoming more and more common uh, in Reformed and, and even in Baptist circles. Uh, we, hopefully, we're, we're doing so in a way that will be constructive and, and helpful for those listening. Uh, but today, we want to briefly consider this whole idea of a theonomy. And so uh, let's begin with the uh, most basic of questions. <laughs> and what is theonomy? Yeah, well, I mean, if you just take the, the word itself, the etymology of the word divides into theos and namos, which are two words that, of course, simply mean God's law. And so if that's all it means, that's all theonomy means is God's law, then no Christian would ever disagree with that. No Orthodox Christian would disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, God's law is supreme and rules over all other laws. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's interesting. So often I hear discussions of theonomy and, and that's what they will say. And, and of course, it's true etymologically or, or in light of the meaning of the words. But that's not often how we treat theological terms, right? I mean, right. You, you take, for example, in the end times, uh, post-millennialism, you know, post a prefix meaning after a millennium, of course, coming out of the Latin for thousand years. Uh, post-millennialism etymologically or according to the use of the word simply means Christ's return takes place after the thousand years. Yeah. But uh, post-millennialism certainly means more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if that's all post-millennialism meant, then, then all amillennialists. That's right. Post amillennialism is post-millennialism. And yet we distinguish. Why do we distinguish? Because postmillennialism means more. It entails a certain understanding of what will uh, the church's success in this age, right? right and right, right. Uh, in in the advancement of the the, the kingdom uh, through this age. And so, to to simply uh, restrict a meaning of theonomy to the word use, I, I think, is not helpful in mm -hmm. understanding this controversy and this debate. Yeah, especially since there is a well-established historic use of the term already. Right. There have been whole yeah. books written on this, historical advocates who mean something much more specific than God's law. And so, so here going is, into that, then, then you know, what, what, how would you describe this, this wider understanding of theonomy in light of the, the history and the development of, of this controversy? Yeah, well, the historic definition of theonomy is that all civil government— so all civil governments, Jew, Gentile, all around the world, must enforce the judicial laws of the old covenant, and that they may not enforce any laws besides those that God has commanded. Mm. 
And uh, the, the, the presupposition behind theonomy is that the judicial laws of the old covenant are essentially moral mm-hmm. and that they're absolutely rooted in God's character. And so they're binding on all nations for all times. Mm-hmm. And so with that presupposition and that understanding, the, theonomists say that the old covenant ju- judis- judicial law is a perfect blueprint for all societies. So here where uh, we would uh, recognize with, say, the, the ceremonial law that, you know, the, the ceremonial law that was revealed through the Mosaic covenant of, of uh, animal sacrifices and temple worship, that those were obviously fulfilled in Christ and, and uh, they, they are no longer to be practiced today uh, in light of Christ's coming mm-hmm. in, in the new covenant, um, th- they would not see the judicial law in a similar way, that this was a unique law given to God's old covenant people living in his promised land, but, but that these reveal timeless uh, civil laws or, or laws to be governed by for all societies. Uh, yeah, that's in, right. In and history. even with the even with the ceremonial law, they see that as moral. And mm. the only reason we don't practice it is because of Greg Bonson, for example, has a particular interpretation of Matthew 5 and the fulfillment of the law that, that Christ fills up the law. And so it's mm. not as though even the ceremonial law is abolished. And so they have this flat view of the law, all of the law of God. Um, mm. And you know, Christ hasn't filled up civil law or, or judicial law, and that's has only and ever always been for the for human nations. Right. And 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 from my understanding of Rush Dooney, for example, I mean, we're, we're starting to use you know, historical proponents here, right? Uh, where it's uh, Rush Day or Dooney or whether it's Greg Bonson or, or others. Uh, but my understanding of Rush Dooney is that he denied the threefold distinction of moral ceremony and civil. Yeah, uh, and and so in that way it was contra-confessional in his understanding of of the law, and and we can uh, see that especially again in theonomy as it applies to the uh, civil or judicial law. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, in in light of that kind of understanding, then of of what theonomy is uh, in terms of again uh, Rushduni and 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 Bonson and you know, North and, and, and many others today. Uh, what, what do you see then as, as some of the problems with theonomy? Why would we not be <laughs> theonomists? Yeah, well, I would break this into four different things and say mm-hmm. there's basically four misunderstandings that theonomy has. Mm-hmm. And the first most central misunderstanding theonomy has is what we've been talking about. It misunderstands God's law. Theonomy does not have an orthodox taxonomy of law. Mm. They say judicial law is moral law, therefore it's a universal norm for all nations at all times. But historic Orthodox theology, classical theology and Reformed theology, distinguished among different aspects of God's law. So for example, uh, Franciscus Junius is a uh, classical theologian, and he wrote a book titled The Mosaic Polity, in which he relies on Thomas Aquinas's categories of law. Mm. And th- there's a good article about this, if you want to look it up on the internet, by uh, Timon Klein, titled, uh, What Theonomy Gets Wrong About the Law. And he examines um, Junius's book and thesis there. 
But just to sort of summarize here, uh, Junius is expounding on Aquinas' category of law, and here it is, basically. I'm leaving some detail out, obviously. It's a short podcast, but this is the general gist. The first way we need to understand God's law is in terms of eternal law. Mm -hmm. What is eternal law? It's timeless law which is in God himself. So the eternal law of God is God's own righteousness and holiness. Mm. So what's eternal law? Eternal law is God mm. because all that is in God is God and it's perfect. It's infinite. It's unchangeable. It's incomprehensible. Uh, the, the eternal law of God is God's very essence or nature. And so that is the eternal law of God is infinite and incomprehensible in itself. But God has revealed his law by creating all that he's created. It reflects his own righteousness and his character. And that brings us to the second category of law, which is natural law. Mm -hmm. So the big distinction in theology is creator and creation. Well, the creator is law in himself, in the sense that he is righteous. Mm -hmm. And then when he created the world, the creation is nature. It's all things that God has created. And God's eternal law is revealed then through general revelation, which is everything God has made. Mm -hmm. And so this natural law is written in creation, and it's written on the consciences of God's personal creatures. Mm -hmm. And the Bible speaks of this. It's not like we're just—this isn't just philosophizing— Right, about right. you know things it's it says it plainly in Romans 1 what does Romans 1 20 verse 20 say it says that God's invisible attributes are clearly revealed in creation mm. well his attributes include righteousness and holiness and his power and all these things we can see who God is and thus what his law is like in creation Romans 2 14 says that the work of of the law is written on the hearts of men even Gentiles by nature and so there you have creation and conscience both reveal God and his law. Mm -hmm. So those are the two big categories. But then according to Junius, one application, and this is also Aquinas, of natural law is what's called human law. Mm -hmm. So Junius argues that the human law applies God's natural law to particular human societies. So these human laws... In, in the ideal sense, so ideal human law is applying God's natural law, and it's bound to particular times and specific situations. Okay. So in his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, Richard Muller actually lists human law, lex uh, humana. And he says that human law defines the duty of a subject and serves a common good. And so normally we would expect human rulers to create human laws, right? So you right. think the duty of a king or of a governor or, you know, of a legislature is to make human laws that are the outworking of God's natural law. But according to Junius in the nation of Israel, the old covenant judicial law was human law, even mm -hmm. though God issued this law in scripture. So even though God gave the judicial law, it was still human law because it was uniquely designed for the historical circumstances of old covenant Israel. Now, to be very clear here, Israel's human law was ideally suited to do what it did. God gave it, and it was a, it's a perfect example, not in the sense that God is perfect, but nonetheless a perfect example in human society of how to make human law and a, and a, a 
and a fitting natural law to particular uh, people and circumstances and culture. And so there is much we can learn from judicial law, but it is not God's law for all nations at all times. Right. Now, we, we've also in the past uh, noted that this, the important distinction between natural law or moral law from positive law. So how, right. how does understanding the Old Covenant judicial law relate to this whole idea of positive law? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, the the human the human judicial law of the old covenant was a kind of positive law. Mm-hmm. And just to refresh our listeners, uh, the term positive law refers to God to laws that God posits by fiat, mm-hmm. in distinction from laws that are necessitated by God's own character. So natural law is necessitated by God's own character, and it's a law that people know innately by nature, but positive law is a law that God commands in covenants, which people would not know unless God commanded them. And that, that, that shows how positive laws can and do change from covenant to covenant because they're not necessitated by God's character. They serve a special, positive laws serve a special administrative and revelatory purpose in the covenant in which they're given. But after that covenant is fulfilled and abrogated, the positive laws of that covenant are then abolished. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, 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 an obvious example would be like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a positive mm-hmm. law. You know, now that that covenant has been broken, uh, <laughs> the curse of it remains upon us, but there's no tree of knowledge of good and evil for us anymore or of a tree mm-hmm. of life. So those positive commandments have served their purpose and they're no longer for us anymore. Well, the same is true of old covenant uh, judicial law. So that's the first misunderstanding of theonomy. I think it's the most important and basic. It has a, or one of the most important and basic has a misunderstanding of the law. Right, right. Well, building on that, what what would you say is the second uh, area of of concern or or problem of, of theonomy? Yeah, well, a, a second point I would make is that theonomy deeply misunderstands the right relationship between general revelation and special revelation. Hmm. So remember, general revelation is all that God has created, creation and conscience, reason versus the Bible, you know, which is God's today's sufficient special revelation. Theonomy says that the Bible is sufficient revelation for everything. Hmm. But the problem is, that the Bible isn't sufficient revelation for everything, is it? Wait a minute. Are you denying the sufficiency of Scripture, Tom? I'm I'm so, <laughs> I'm denying <laughs> that the Bible is sufficient revelation for everything. You mm. know, it's sufficient special revelation. It is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to to understand God and his ways, we also need general revelation. General mm. revelation is required. It's necessary to, to insist that the Bible is sufficient. Revelation, for all, it would be to deny that general revelation is necessary. Mm-hmm. So um, Orthodox theology teaches us that we need both general and special revelation. Mm. The Bible doesn't tell us absolutely everything we need to know to govern any human institution. So, for example, the Bible does not tell fathers that they have authority to tell their children to clean their rooms. You could say, well, show me that. God's law or man's law. You know, you can imagine this child having a debate with his dad. Dad, God didn't give you authority to tell me to clean my room, mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but, but that's, that's absurd. A father may, may use his God given reason, which is natural revelation 
general revelation to decide that a child's room needs to be clean and the father can decide when and how the child needs to clean it. A father does not need a chapter and verse out of the Bible to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, though everything a father does for himself and in a way of instructing his children should be consistent with the teachings of scripture as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's in the home, but you can see this in the church as well. The, the second London Baptist Confession says that the Bible is not sufficient revelation to govern the church. What? I know, man. <laughs> it says in Second London Confession, chapter one, paragraph six, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. That's general revelation. Mm-hmm. So in other words, some circumstances, gen- in some circumstances, general revelation is necessary to govern the church. Well, in the same way, Civil government requires the wise use of reason. General revelation, and of course, the light of special revelation is important for wisdom as well, even in civil government. I, have, I certainly would affirm that. And well, so wait a has, minute. Wait a minute. I mean, w- w- what about, look, I think we could agree that in today's society in which we live, uh, there is a growing abandonment of, of any sense of... Uh, uh, morality, at least a God-given morality in, in our culture, right? And so does, does this not show uh, the, the problems with relying on uh, general revelation and, and the need for us to press upon um, society and, and culture special revelation? Yeah, and that's exactly the point a theonomist would make here. They'd say, look, they'd say, you know, People are in rebellion. Our culture is is departing from God's standard, and there's no way that general revelation is enough. You're going to need a lot more than that. The human mind is too fallen. Well, of course, they're correct. The human mind is fallen, and our culture is corrupt and growing in wickedness. But, But watch. The human mind is also too fallen and sinful to correctly understand and apply special revelation. How are we going to think unregenerate people are going to... Um, handle special revelation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if so, so I can make a case from general revelation and they'll reject it and I can make a case from special revelation and they'll reject it. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. what's, what's needed in this case, this goes back. The solution to sin and depravity is not arguing for law from a special, from, from any kind of revelation. The only mm-hmm. answer to the depraved human mind is is the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men through the gospel. That's how ultimately the only way that our culture can be changed. It doesn't mean we don't make arguments for, you know, right civil law and cultural norms. Certainly we should, but we shouldn't arbitrarily limit ourselves to to special revelation arguments. And our desire then uh, for a righteous society uh, will only be realized insofar as there's conversion of souls. Absolutely, right. brother. So this idea of a moral transformation of culture without, uh, without the, the, the gospel <laughs> being proclaimed and, and believed uh, is essentially it, it can undermine uh, the centrality of Christ and the gospel. Absolutely. Uh, in, in the ministry of the church and the life of God's people. And, and ultimately, because the law cannot transform, uh, we wind up at where there, uh, where there's a, a fruitless investment of 
time and energy uh, to try and, and and bring about this moral re uh, reformation or yeah. uh, more, uh, what's it called, uh, flourishing uh, of, of society yeah, we, without we, the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of souls. It, it just won't work. You know, you mm -hmm. cannot law a culture, legislate a culture into holiness. Mm -hmm. You're not going to do it. You're not going to argue them down. You're not going to be a good enough apologist to persuade people. You're not going to reason them into the truth. You know, I'm not a, 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 at the same time, I'm not denying that those things and the scripture doesn't deny that those are important. We certainly mm -hmm. should make such cases. But the, the only way culture is going to be changed is through conversion. So mm -hmm. let me I just wanted to say that my overall point here in the second point, a misunderstanding yeah. of general and special revelation is that theonomy is a kind of biblicism. Mm. Biblicism denies the proper role of general revelation in discovering divine truth. Mm. Biblicism rejects the proper place of reason. It denies that any wisdom can arise from the human conscience or the study of creation. So let me just give you an example of this problem in theonomy. Let's say I was arguing up for a point of public the public policy, you know, like, I don't know, speed limits. Or if I were to say I'm opposed to the militarization of the police, mm -hmm. a theonomist might ask me then, by what standard? <laughs> but he's not really asking for God's standard when he asks that question. What he's asking is, by what chapter and verse in the Bible? You see, mm -hmm. so the problem is that God's standards from gov for government are not only revealed in biblical judicial law. Mm -hmm. Rather, God's truth and his wisdom for government is revealed in both general and special revelation. And we can make arguments about public policy from reason, from history, and from the general principles of Scripture. Mm. Mm. Yeah, boy, that's uh, so important for us to... Uh, remember and and to understand when we're considering theonomy and um, Tom, there's so much here to uh, for us to consider. Uh, let's let's consider then your third uh, problem or or this third misunderstanding of uh, theonomy that you want to bring out today. Yeah. So, so the first is it misunderstands law. The second is it misunderstands the relationship between general and special revelation. And the third is that theonomy misunderstands the biblical covenants. Mm. Now, this one really is very serious. Mm -hmm. um, theonomy has a tendency to flatten out the Bible's covenants. And when, when I speak of theonomy here, I'm really talking of about the the form in which we normally see it today, which is a theonomic reconstructionism. Mm. Um, so we've we've seen how they imp they would impose the judicial laws of the old covenant upon the new covenant era. They're uniting old and new covenants into one, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all one law. It's a mononomism that there's one law of God, there's no distinction, and it's all one covenant. But here's why that's so dangerous. In the old covenant, God promised prosperity, life, and health to Israel on the condition of their obedience to God's law. Mm. You can see this in Galatians 3.12 and in Galatians 4, verses 21 and 21 to 26, which shows us that the old covenant was a kind of covenant of works, a type and a reminder of the original covenant of works. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to make that whole case here, right, but if right. you're interested, you can... Uh, go read Sam Renahan's book, The Mystery of Christ, and his chapters on the Old Covenant, which argue that the Old Covenant was a kind of covenant of works in its mm -hmm. substance. Mm -hmm. 
And so theonomists say, though, that every nation should come under that old covenant system. Mm. And then they say that's the gospel. Mm. They say God promises to give life, glory, and prosperity to nations that keep his law. Mm. That's not the gospel. Mm. That is a works covenant. You see what they're doing covenantally? They're flattening out the covenants and unifying them in a way that confuses the covenant of works and the covenant of grace or the law and the gospel. Now, I I, I admit that, uh, granted, (laughs) of course, I'm speaking as a Baptist here. Uh, but when I, when I consider covenant theology, I, I, I don't think it's a surprise that this kind of theonomic understanding of, of the Mosaic judicial law uh, is, is rooted in uh, a, an error that comes out of, you know, Reformed and Presbyterian theology that already can overly flatten the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Right. Yeah, and they they historically they tried to fence off this error that I'm talking about, and they made mm-hmm. uh, feel they constructed theology to avoid it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a pressure, I believe, in historic reform paedo Baptist systems in this direction, mm-hmm. because they're unifying all the biblical covenants into one. Except normally, Orthodox all Orthodox reform theology distinguished between the Adamic covenant or the mm-hmm. covenant of works and the covenant of grace in Jesus. Right. And so they, that's how they rescued themselves from any kind of a legalism. But this mm-hmm. is the problem. Many theonomists go that far. Mm-hmm. They take mm-hmm. it one step further, not only reading the old covenant into the new covenant, but they read the Adamic covenant of works into the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And they flatten all of the biblical covenants into one. They say the Adamic covenant was the covenant of grace, which is... Uh, what has been called monocovenantalism. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, God promised life and glory to Adam on the condition of his obedience to expand the garden paradise all over the world. What was Adam's mission? It was to work to achieve a society of life and glory everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that is what theonomists say is the church's mission. Mm-hmm. That Adam's mission in the covenant of works was no different from the church's mission in the covenant of grace right now. And, mm-hmm. and some will even say there was never even a, any covenant of works. Mm-hmm. That the Adamic covenant of works was just a form of the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. So under what we're, what, what we're supposed to do is keep the law under grace with Jesus by faith to work to uh, bring in the kingdom of God and, and God will give us life and kingdom and glory. Um, one theonomist, just to give you an example of this, Andrew Sandlin, mm-hmm. um, he says this in theological language, the ground of eternal life in the prelapsarian era is the grace of God. Mm. What is its instrument and means? I believe that they are really no different than in the, in the subsequent eras, faith in the Lord accompanied by obedience. Mm. So the means of of glory, <laughs> the, the, the means of eternal life is faith and obedience, he says. And then he mm-hmm. says, uh, there is no fundamental distinction, this is a quote, no fundamental distinction between gospel and law. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Boot, who be, who's become a very popular uh, writer and is mm-hmm. widely commended uh, by various people, but he's a Baptistic theonomist, and he writes this, God is the Lord. Adam is his creature. Any covenant between a greater and a lesser is already a covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. 
And then he says, I put it to you that there is no such thing ever as a covenant of works in scripture, whereby a man is justifying himself. Wow. So what's the effect of this? It's to collapse law and gospel. The gospel becomes that you need to keep the law of God under grace to obtain God's kingdom and glory. And, and whether theonomists make it explicit or not, whether they avoid this implication or not, the implication is that we're justified by works. Mm. Maybe not because of works. Maybe they would say that works aren't the ground of our justification. Nonetheless, they're instrumental with faith for life and glory and justification. So I think this is really very dangerous. Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, as I think about what you just said, it, 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 isn't it interesting how many theonomists also draw upon uh, broader constructions of, say, federal vision theology, or maybe even new perspectivism through N.T. Wright and others, which, which tend to uh, have these uh, these, un, well, ultimately unbiblical views of justification. Mm -hmm. And those that you just mentioned are reconstructionist in some way or another. Mm. I mean, what's N.T. Wright's paradigm or program? It's to bring in the kingdom through our works and build an earthly paradise. Mm. You know, this mm. worldly kingdom making through our works. Same thing, you know, we have the same of the federal vision, which has changed in its emphases over the mm. years, mm -hmm. but still they believe in that God's going to bring in the kingdom through us, through what we're doing in this world uh, and transform society using mm. the works of his people, the worship of his people as a means, mm. you know, but the Bible teaches that Christ alone did what Adam failed to do. Amen. Christ earned justification and life and the kingdom and glorification without any help from us, without anything that we do. We do not cooperate with Christ to keep God's law and the covenant of grace to achieve paradise. Mm -hmm. Rather, the Bible teaches that Jesus alone perfectly obeys the law in the covenant of redemption, meriting eternal life, the kingdom of paradise, and final glorification. And then Christ freely gives all of those graces to his elect people in the covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. That's the gospel. And this is the heart of the Reformation. True yes. Reformed covenant theology carefully distinguishes between the covenant of works in Adam and the covenant of grace in Christ. And this is what theonomy, the pressures that are in the theonomic system, uh, are pushing it to fail to do. Mm -hmm. Some are more explicit about this than others. Some are at some at some point along this trajectory, but it's tending to flatten everything. Uh, but true covenant theology, uh, reform covenant theology is bicovenantal, mm -hmm. law and gospel. And theonomy, of course, is not. That's right. That's right. Well, I know this is already becoming a supersized episode, <laughs> but there's there really are important uh, things that we need to bring out to rightly understand uh, why we're not theonomist and, and what it means to hold to Orthodox, Reformed, and, and Baptist theology, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, why don't you briefly uh, mention then the, the fourth problem you see with theonomy? Yeah, the, the fourth thing is that theonomy misunderstands biblical typology. Right. And so if the right way to understand the covenants is not to collapse them all into one, then what is the proper understanding of old and new covenants or old mm. and new testaments. The right way to see the old and the new Testament is type and anti-type. Mm -hmm. And that's how the new Testament teaches us to read the old Testament. 
mm-hmm. that the Old Testament is typological of Christ and of redemption in him. So give you just a few concrete examples of this. These could be multiplied, of course, but sure. we aren't uh, we aren't simply in a different administration of the Adamic covenant as some mm-hmm. um, theonomic reconstructionists teach. Rather, mm-hmm. Romans 5.14 says that the that Adam is a type. It uses a word. Adam is a type of him who is to come. Mm-hmm. The Adamic covenant doesn't reveal how we're to work for our own glory. Instead, the Adamic covenant reveals what Christ was to come to do to achieve glory for us. Mm-hmm. He, Jesus is the antitype. He's the reality. Another example, Galatians 4.24 says that we should see Sarah and Hagar, uh, Abraham's uh, wife and uh, and the servant woman, Sarah and Hagar, as two covenants. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hagar is a type of the covenant of works, according to Paul. This is a covenant of slavery, which teaches that we must do this and live in the book of Galatians. Mm-hmm. But Sarah is a type of the new covenant of grace, which teaches that Christ became a curse for us in the book of Galatians and that we live and receive the kingdom of God, and we receive glory and justification by faith alone and Him alone. Mm. And theonomists don't grasp this typological kind of relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. Another example of typology, which theonomists miss, is uh, that the Old Testament term karam, or devoted to the ban, is typological. Mm-hmm. That's the term often associated with the death penalty in the Old Covenant. Um, you know, that if you break a commandment, you know, say you, you you commit adultery or, you know, there's a rebellious child or whatever it might be, he's he's devoted to the ban or he's karam. And mm-hmm. it refers to the death penalty. But really, this old covenant curse of karam is a type of eternal condemnation. Mm-hmm. Karam is the curse Christ embraced for us on the cross. And so mm-hmm. this they misunderstand the death penalties, the lavish and expansive use of death penalties in the Old Covenant is really typological of hell. Romans, mm-hmm. uh, Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Mm-hmm. That's the Old Covenant. But then it says in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? That's the New Covenant. In other words, the Old Testament penalty for lawlessness was the civil death penalty. Mm-hmm. But the New Testament penalty for rejecting Christ and his covenant is eternal condemnation in hell. That's type and antitype. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a few examples. We could keep going on this on the typology of the Old Old Covenant and how it's designed not to be the same covenant with us. But but the Bible shows that the relationship between the old and the new is that between type and anti-type. Right, right. Well, hey, before we go, we're already dealing with a supersized uh, episode here. Um, why, don't, why don't we briefly at least mention and address uh, a common argument that's given from Scripture uh, yeah. for this? Uh, you know, Deuteronomy 4, right? Well-known, uh, God's people Israel are... Uh, Deuteronomy, you know, second giving or, or of the law as they're about to enter the promised land by mm-hmm. Moses, right? And so Deuteronomy 4, I mean, I can read uh, verses uh, 5 to 8 here. Um, but here we have Moses uh, speaking to God's people. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. You should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. 
Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that God has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law? which I set before you this day. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it, we can see that, that God's not only giving this law to his people, but there's a sense in which they're receiving this law uh, before the nations and that the nations see the righteous judgments of God through them. How, how then do you, do you see this uh, as in, in relation to what we have uh, discussed in the uh, under in this typological understanding of old covenant judicial law. Yeah, well, I would say that um, this is probably the main proof text that I hear theonomists using. They'll point right mm. to that and say, "See, that proves the whole point." But of course, right. already they're not going to take this. They're not. It proves too much if you're saying mm. old covenant laws for all nations, because even they would not say. <laughs> that all the nations of the world should adopt every law of the old covenant, mm -hmm. which was a unit that it's all mm -hmm. one, you know? Right. Um, so they would deny that other nations should practice a ceremonial law or, or, you know, um, aspects of Israelite worship or perhaps mm -hmm. even certain ceremonial aspects of its government. And so even they would want to caveat this a little and not want to see it totally exactly imported. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think the point of this is that they look at the God of Israel and the way he rules Israel mm -hmm. and they say, what a white, righteous and, and good God. Not that they would want that identical system for themselves, but wish our God would be so wise and good with to us, you know, which is, of course, mm -hmm. would never work. But that's what they're looking at is the way that God has applied his own eternal law to them in a perfectly wise way for that nation in their circumstances, in their situation. Right. And that, that is what is good and righteous. So they, they would see the God given human law and recognize the beauty of it. Absolutely. Right? The great wisdom, and the great wisdom of it, but, but they wouldn't, uh, that, that doesn't mean that they should then incorporate this human law into their own society uh, with, with, you know, in, in just a strict, you know, we want to take uh, the book of Deuteronomy or, or, you know, well, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, where, where the law is given and then simply bring it over into uh, this, this pagan society. Yeah, and that's right? actually not what the verse even says. Mm -hmm. I wish we were under that same old covenant. They're not saying that. They're right. saying they're what they're saying is that the God of Israel is wise in how he governs them. Hmm. There's no nation governed so well. Right. So there's there's a drawing into uh relation with God through this, but but not uh apart from uh ultimately a recognition of who he is and their need for uh for him and and his righteousness which comes through his promise and, and it gets back to the gospel of christ amen. right amen brother great great well thank you so much for that tom i certainly been helpful to me and uh, trust that it's going to be helpful for those who listen as well uh thank you everyone for listening here today to the modern merriman podcast on the man of god network brought to you by covenant baptist theological seminary if you'd like to know more about cbts 
please visit us online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. You know, one of the things I've been wrestling over is why, I don't know how to say it, why do I care so much? I mean, there's lots of theological errors out there, right? Like um, dispensationalism, I'm not a fan of, but I don't go around, um, you know, saying MacArthurites or, you know, compromising the gospel and going to hell or whatever, right? Like, I mean, uh, I'm no fan of, anybody knows me knows I'm not a fan of dispensationalism. For me, but, it's because it's in the family, man. That's yeah, what's I, that's it's a it's a dynamic of this is surging now and yeah. not only in, among Christians and in evangelicals, but particularly it's gotten a hold of you know Reformed Baptists. That's a good point. That's that that, that yeah. I, I for part of it for me is even as wrong as dispensationalism is, uh, generally speaking, uh, you don't see their errors. I mean, you do in extreme forms of dispensationalism. No, Reformed Baptists tend to be running from that. Right. They're but but I think you make a great point that this, this is something that's now coming in among us. That's right. You know, uh, again, other than MacArthur devotees and, and even those who like, I mean, I love and respect MacArthur, right. Yeah. But yeah, but I'm not tempted to you know buy into that whole system. Right. Um, but here, I mean, it's amazing to see and I'll how say many. For, I'm personally also just personally concerned with this error because pastorally, I have seen what it does to people and mm. the effect that it has on their orientation to God and to the world. And brother, I believe it turns people into Pharisees yeah, who are interested about beating everybody over the head with a the law. They're not there. It's not about personal faith, holiness, humility, death, taking up your own cross, suffering to love other people. It's about changing the world so that they won't say it this way, but so I can live in God's kingdom. Well, and, and, and in a sense, they, I mean, certain conceptions of it um, can corrupt the very great commission itself. Right. Um, where it's about discipling the nations, not, not individual conversion, right. It doesn't exactly. say go and make converts. It says disciple the nations. And so we should be concerned about the nations. And I, well, of course, of course we should care about the nations, but we care about the nations through uh, the individual conversions right. that, that are in, of the people right. in those nations. Right? Yeah, and, and, and the next episode, we're going to show there is an application of law. There mm -hmm. is. And I believe mm -hmm. we should fight for it. Like we should Amen. fight against injustice. But what's our goal? It's it's that we would have good order, a well-ordered society, not that we would turn our society into the glory of God. That's a mm -hmm. big difference in my view. And one is tied to salvation. The other is tied to a common grace effort to love and do good to our neighbor. Amen. You know?